0: beam of particles with a magnetic dipole uh, and with spin two would split into how many beams after going through a Stern-Gerlach device? The beam is split into two s plus one streams. If s equals two, then that gives you five. What is the difference between an eigenstate of orbital angular momentum and an eigenstate of spin? Uh, Oops. The operators of L squared and Lz can be represented as angular angular differential operators, so their eigenstates depend on the angular coordinates theta and phi, but for spin, the eigenvectors are not spherical harmonics, so they're not functions of theta and phi. Uh, Things that people are confused about. I don't understand how if S plus and S minus are not observables, how they can be broken down into their components, Sx and Sy. So it's the same as um, a complex number can be written in terms of two real numbers. If you get to use a square root of minus 1. So you, if you take two observables and add them together, but put a square root of minus 1 in front of it, that's not something that's going to be observable, because its expectation values would be complex numbers. And Apparatus in the laboratory usually reads out real numbers. So, there's no contradiction right now. Equation 4.29 says m equals minus l up to minus l plus 1 up to l. And equation 4.137 says m equals minus s, minus s plus 1 up to s minus 1s. Why are they both correct? Uh, Because the variable m can mean lots of different things. In one case, it means the eigenvalue of LZ over here. Over here, it means the eigenvalue of SZ. F- there so, to be more letters in English. Yeah, <laughs> well, so one way to get around this is if we call all angular momentum J, then M is the Z component of the J angular momentum. And J is can be orbital or spin. But uh, from the context, you're supposed to figure out what it means. Yeah? Don't some books use M sub L? Or M sub yeah. You could do that, too. And why does he purpose hmm? To make you think. That's why he did it, I'm sure. Um, there are a lot of chapters in the book that do not get covered. Is there anything important in these chapters, and why are they not covered? Yes, there's lots of important things in those other chapters. And... Uh, the reason we don't cover them is that there's not enough time in two quarters to cover everything in the book. I think there should be three quarters of quantum mechanics. And you guys should have to take a third quarter so we can cover all that other good stuff. But no one listens to me. <laughs> so uh, I had to choose what we're going to try to squeeze in. And uh, I think there'll be a challenge just to cover what's listed on the syllabus. But if I'm going too slow, please tell me to speed up. Uh, what does it mean for the electron to have a fixed spin half? Can we add an infinitesimal amount of angular momentum? Uh, it means that you can't. That it's fixed means that you can't <coughs> add an infinitesimal amount. So spin is quantized, angular momentum is quantized. You can go up by, you can raise the z component by integer values up to the maximum. It's the quintessential quantum mechanics problem. So if there's a one thing that you're going to learn in this class, it better be how to deal with spin. That is the most important thing in the whole quarter, how to deal with spin and how to add spins together. If you understand that, then you under- in some sense, you understand the basis of quantum mechanics. Then you can generalize it to more complicated things. Uh, if spins are set, how can they be altered, such as in an MRI machine? Well, you read about lamor precession. A magnetic field can make your spin point in some other direction. You can make the spin precess around. You can make your magnetic field oscillate in time and do all kinds of interesting things. But the, t- the max S squared for a particle is not going to change, even if you point it in a different direction. How do we know that elementary particles have fixed spins? Is it from lab experiments or from the math? Um, Well, from the math, we saw that we get these quantized spins. In the lab, you verify all the people have been testing quantum mechanics for 70 years or more. And uh, no one's ever found an inconsistency with quantum mechanics. And they've done all kinds of experiments, like Stern-Gerlach experiments and no one's seen a particle change its spin. I mean, there are are processes where the initial particles are different from the final particles, and the final particles can have different spins from the initial particles, but no one's ever seen an electron change its spin to spin 1 or spin 3 halves. How is a spin 2 particle different from a spin 1 particle? Well, one way it's different is that the z component of the spin can go from minus 2 to plus 2. So there's five possible uh, values, whereas for spin 1, there's only three possible values. So we say that there are five polarizations of a massive spin 2 particle and three polarizations of a massive spin 1. Notice I slipped in massive. So what what's the spin of a photon? You guys know? One? one? How many polarizations does a photon have? Probably in EM, they taught you two. Two polarizations. That's polarizers. When you put on polarized sunglasses, you can wear them this way or you can wear them that way. There's two polarizations of the photon. Uh, The reason the formula doesn't work is that these formulas are for massive particles. Photons travel at the speed of light so to get the number of polarization right you have to do quantum field theory or at least do relativistic quantum mechanics Uh, how do we determine what S is for a specific particle well we measure it in the lab no one could have predicted no one knows how to predict what the spin of a or why we have the particles we have or why they have the spins they have So the next question, how come spin half seems to be the dominant spin value used in nature? If you can answer that question, then you're going to win the Nobel Prize, because nobody knows. An object isn't physically spinning turning when referenced to have a spin of, say, spin a half. Why then do we call it spin if it's not really spinning? And how do we visualize what spin is? So as far as we know, an electron is point-like. So a point doesn't have any structure to be spinning. But when we send it through a magnetic field, it acts like it's spinning. So we call it spin because it's sort of like spin, but it's not really. So you could come up with some new name, and they could have called it that, but they didn't. Um, there's no way to visualize it, really. But it acts like angular momentum in a quantum mechanical angular momentum. That's all we know. And it can be half integral. Let's see what else we got. So the poll results are in, and five winning questions. Since you probably read them, first one is about Hawking radiation from black holes. Second one is about electrons and moving between different energy levels. Is there a moment of time when the electron is traveling between these different shells or energy levels? So. We can already make a first pass at answering this. So, we've seen what the distributions of electrons are around a hydrogen nucleus. And so, you can probably see from those uh, plots that we look- looked at, if you're in an excited level, you're more likely to be further away from the nucleus than in a lower level. But um, there's always some place uh, in an excited wave function. Where there's a non-zero probability uh, if you were in a lower energy level. So it's not necessary not necessarily true that electron is in different spatial locations because it's in different energy levels. It could there are some locations that are can be in many levels. So it's not as simple as the Bohr model where there's just it's going in a certain shell and in never goes outside of that spherical shell. There's a distribution over all of space. So um, we'll try to answer that more precisely when we calculate how electrons go between energy levels. Since uh, we've been doing time independent Schrodinger equation, so we'll need to uh, think about some time dependence to figure out how it goes between energy levels. Uh, simple one, how do quantum computers work? Neutron stars are made of neutrons. How is that possible? And uh, many worlds theory. So um, the lucky winners who wrote these questions get 10 bonus points on the final. And uh, you guys are supposed to make sure that I answer these questions before the quarter ends. But I'll, I'll try to work them in when, when we've covered enough material to answer them. Okay. So last time we were looking at angular momentum and we just looked at using the commutators of the angular momentum to figure out its properties So what we said is if we had a state that had, it's an eigenstate of LZ and L squared with eigenvalues mu and lambda Uh, We can construct a raising operator out of LX plus ILY, and that will increase the LZ quantum number. But the square of the LZ quantum number has to be less than the L squared quantum number. So That that told us that there must be some state that as we apply the raising operator over and over again, we get to some state where applying the raising operator one more time just gives us zero. So there's no more states beyond that. And (coughs) if we call the eigenvalue of that particular top state, L times H bar, then we showed, using the commutation relations between um, the different components of L, that we could, uh, given that information, we know that the uh, eigenvalue of L squared has to be H bar squared L times L plus 1 where L is the maximum value of the LZ quantum number. So now we can do the same thing (coughs) with the lowering operator. The lowering operator is going to reduce the LZ quantum number by 1, but it can't be arbitrarily small. So we must find a bottom state that we can't go below. There must be some state, and when we act on it with the lowering operator, we get 0 since, again, its square has to be less than the eigenvalue of L squared. So let's call that eigenvalue LB. And we still have the L squared acting on uh, 5B, this lambda 5B. So we can write L squared in terms of raising and lowering operators again. This time we'll choose to write it with the L minus acting on the, being on the right, so it acts first. And we had a formula for that last time. So L squared is equal to L plus L minus plus LZ squared minus I minus H bar LZ. This came from the fact that um, LX and LY don't commute. So acting on the state Phi B, L minus, acting on Phi B gives us zero h squared LB squared, minus h squared LB. And on the left-hand side, this is supposed to be lambda. Because all our eigenstates were constructed to have eigenvalue lambda for L squared. But we already worked out what lambda has to be from the raising operator. So that's L times L plus 1 h bar squared and this is LB times LB minus 1 so that means that we should be able to solve for LB in terms of L so one possibility is that LB is equal to L plus 1, but that's impossible because L was the maximum value that we got by adding 1, 1, 1, we get, get as high as possible, so LB should be smaller than L. So the other possibility is that LB was minus L, and then LB minus 1, minus L minus 1 and minus L times minus L times minus 1 is equal to L times L plus 1. So we can define, um, let's define the eigenvalue of LZ acting on state phi to be h to bar M. So now this is an arbitrary state with some arbitrary value, Lz. And we call it M because the old guys called it M. And we called it M when we solved our three-dimensional Schrodinger equation. So what we have is that this M can go from the lowest value, minus L, and then using the raising operator, we can add 1 to that. So minus L plus 1, minus L plus 2, up to L minus 1, L. Because last time we decided the maximum value for the LZ quantum number was L. So, in general, there could be n steps to get from here to there, adding integers. Which is to say L is equal to minus L plus N, where N is an integer. That's how many times we had to go up. And uh, if I add L to both sides, divide by 2, I get L is N over 2. So if N is even, then L is an integer. If N is odd, and it's a half integer. Those are the only possible cases. Any questions about that part? So you're supposed to be impressed because... uh, we worked out these properties of angular momentum using algebra, whereas before we worked them out solving differential equations. Most people find algebra easier than solving differential equations. And secretly what this is is some fancy math called group theory. So we used some commutators and worked out the possible um, eigenvalues of these operators. We worked out that there has to be a set of states that have related eigenvalues. That's called the representation of the group. So you guys know group theory now. If you go to graduate school, you're going to learn more group theory. But since you already understand it, you're set. So that's part of how I chose what to cover in the course is what are the things you're most likely to need in graduate school. Okay, <clears throat> so there's some painful math that we're gonna do. So we know that angular momentum is r cross p and in quantum mechanics momentum is a gradient operator, h bar over i times the gradient. And we can write the gradient in spherical coordinates where these things with it's a light changer. Where these little hats represent unit vectors. So, arbitrary point r, r hat is a unit vector pointing radially outward, and theta hat is a unit vector pointing in the theta direction. And then there's an orthogonal phi hat is the unit vector pointing in the phi direction. So the direction it points depends on where R is. So <coughs> we can write those in terms of our usual unit vectors, x hat, y hat, and z hat, using some trigonometry. So that just follows from the definitions of x, y, and z in terms of r theta and phi. Is that I don't need to go for this part. So let's just work out what r cross p is. So there'll be an r cross an r hat term here. An r cross r hat vanishes. There's an r cross theta hat, which is a phi hat. And there's an r cross phi hat, which is a minus theta hat. And then the magnitudes of r cancel out. So we can write the L as a vector in terms of spherical coordinates. can be written like that. And then we can plug in what theta hat and phi hat are in terms of x, y, and z. And we get this big mess. And then we can pick off the coefficient of x hat is Lx. So it's got a minus sine phi dividing theta minus cos theta over sine theta cos phi d by d phi. And the same for LY, pick off the coefficients of y hat, and z hat, just get one term d by d phi. And that one we saw before when we were solving the 3D Schrodinger equation. And these, uh, these we glossed over because it was too painful and now you see it in all its glory detail. So what we need to do is calculate L squared. So the, well one way to do it is to write it in terms of L plus and L minus like we did in our last exercise. So just plugging in what LX and LY are to derive what L plus L min- or L minus is. Uh, using that e to the i phi is cos phi plus i sine phi. We can write it into compactly with an e to the plus or minus i phi. And the plus or minus i cotangent theta d by d phi. And our expression for L squared, well, one, the way we just wrote it a minute ago was L plus L minus plus Lz squared minus H bar Lz. So we need to work out what L plus L minus is. So we need to write L plus acting on L minus, so we factored out an h bar squared. So this theta derivative goes through the z to di phi, so we get a term with two theta derivatives, then the theta can act on this cotangent theta, so we get a 1 over sine squared theta, and then it can come through to this, so we get a d theta d phi. Then this phi-derivative can act on the exponential, so it'll bring down a minus i, Uh, and it can act here, so we get another mixed derivative, and it can act here, so we get a second derivative. And then using some trigonometry, so these mixed derivatives, there's an i cotangent theta here and a minus i there, so they cancel. Over sine squared uh, minus cotangent squared, we can write as one. A fun trigonometric exercise. And then there's a cotangent squared divided by squared, and there's a cotangent by d theta. So, we can take that and plug that in here. We know that Lz squared, Lz is d by d phi, so Lz squared has a d by d phi squared. And Lz is d by d phi with the minus h bar, there's a 1 over i. So this last term from here cancels against this Lz. And we get this mess here. And that mess there, we've seen before. That was the term that was in our 3D Schrodinger equation. So L squared is this thing, and since we already solved the 3D Schrodinger equation, we know its eigenfunctions are these YLMs. And we're supposed to remember that the YLMs, L was always an integer, whereas we just derived that L could be an integer or a half integer. So these are half of the solutions, the possible eigenstates of angular momentum. So we can rewrite our 3D Schrodinger equation like this. So here are the terms with radial derivatives. And there was this big angular mess. So we can write big angular mess as just L squared times one over two mu r squared, and even more fancy, we could write this this term as just p squared over two m, written in spherical coordinates, the radial momentum, and this so this is a radial kinetic energy, and this is a rotational kinetic energy, and you could write it as L squared over 2I where I is for a point particle at radius R is mu R squared is everyone happy with angular momentum? so there's another simple place where you can apply this angular quantum angular momentum it's a diatomic molecule so Uh, we have two atoms, they have masses M1 and M2 and in the center of mass coordinates, if we put the origin at the center of mass, then M1R1 is equal to M2R2, and we can write this in different ways we add M2R1 to both sides, then we have this and if we add uh, an M1R2 to both sides, we have this, and if we work out uh, the moment of inertia. It's m1 r1 squared plus m2 r2 squared, and you can solve this. We can write <coughs> r1 divide this guy by m1 plus m2, we get an expression for r1. That we plugged in here. Divide this one by m1 plus m2, and we get an expression for r2 that we plugged in here. and They both have r1 plus r2 squared in them, so we can combine the terms then and we get uh, M1, M2 over M1 plus M2. And we call R1 plus R2. That's the total distance between them, R. And this we recognize as the reduced mass. So for this diatomic molecule, we can write the Hamiltonian we assume that it's a rigid rotator so the distance between the atoms is fixed then the only term in the Hamiltonian is going to be this rotational kinetic energy and we want to solve the Schrodinger equation so we want the eigenvalues of the Hamiltonian which is the energy but we already know what the eigenvalues of L squared are they're the YLMs so we've solved it, it's done so, the energies are h bar squared L times L plus 1 over 2i. So, that was too easy. Yeah? We don't use the radial part of the equation. No? So, no. we're pretending for the moment that the distance between the atoms is fixed somehow. I'll we'll come back to that in a minute. So, if we apply this to <coughs> oxygen, Uh, The energy level for the first, if we calculate the energy level for L equals 1. So this is the energy it takes to go from L equals 0 to L equals 1. Just plugging in the mass of oxygen is 16 times the proton mass electrons and protons are roughly the same mass. So we just have to plug in uh, h bar C and the distance between them which you can look up somewhere. This is the typical distance. So you get an energy to go to that first excited rotational level. It's 5 times 10 to the minus 3 electron volts. Now in reality um, oxygen molecules, the oxygens aren't at a fixed distance apart, right? There's some effective force between them. To calculate what that effective force is, we need to figure out how all the electrons are moving around each of the nuclei and then how they interact with the electrons and protons in the other atom. So it's a complicated problem, but experimentally you can determine it. So what you find is that the first approximation... uh, they act like they're in some potential, which is approximately harmonic oscillator, because everything with a minimum is approximately harmonic oscillator, right? So you can measure uh, the vibrational frequency of this by one way to do it is exciting. But so this harmonic oscillator has some energy levels. You can figure out what those energy levels are and that tells you what the vibrational frequency is so that vibrational energy is 0.2 EV which corresponds to vibrational frequency 10 to the 13 hertz so what you see from this is that the vibrational energy is much much bigger than the rotational energy so why is that good? so here's the real picture of what's going on So there's this approximate harmonic oscillator. As you go up to higher levels, you see that it's not really a a harmonic oscillator. It's more complicated. But if you're only sending in, if you're only looking at low energy excitations, so for sending in microwaves, then you can't make a transition from this ground state up to these higher vibrational modes so only sending in infrared radiation you can only excite these modes which are the rotational modes which are not the scale because there was a factor of 100 between those right so to a very good approximation you're only sending in infrared radiation you can't excite these guys so the vibrational modes are always in the, that ground state of the harmonic oscillator and you can factor that out as a separate problem so you can, there's some distribution. There's some harmonic oscillator wave function that tells you the relative positions of the nuclei. And on top of that, there's this rotational spectrum, which you can study separately. Is there any questions about that? Yeah? So we're going over this stuff very, very quickly in the PowerPoint slides. Are we supposed to go through the book and re-derive like, this stuff, or are we so just to over this because we don't really truly need to know it? Um, this is just uh, an example problem of how you can use spherical harmonics to solve a real problem. He does go over it in the textbook, so it was in the reading. Okay, I'm, I'm in the math that we had done earlier on the earlier slides. Oh. He, he, does, he does go through this, and, but I don't you're not going to do derivations on your exams. So, and this is all straightforward stuff. So, you already know how to do this derivation. If you, if you knew where you were going, you could get to the bottom. But you're not, so the idea is to understand where it came from so that once you saw that it came out of something that you understood. So you understood that L is R cross P and at the end we get to this and we know the solutions of the the eigenfunctions of those are the YLMs so that this is just so that you have some perspective of where this is all coming from but the in the course you're supposed to learn how to apply these ideas to problems so We found half of the eigenstates of angular momentum. We found the, int- the ones that have integer values of L. But there are supposed to be these half-integer ones. And uh, historically, people figured, found experimentally, that there was spin. And uh, Stern and Gerlach, even though they didn't know it was spin at the time. And eventually, Mm -hmm. Uhlenbeck and Goudsmit figured out what was going on. So, every particle has some intrinsic angular momentum called spin. And components of that spin satisfy the same commutation (coughs) relations as ordinary angular momentum. So... Sx commuted with Sy gives ih bar Sz and then everything is cyclic so because spin has the same commutation relations we could go through that whole derivation that algebraic derivation that we did for ordinary orbital angular momentum we come to the same conclusions that the z component if we since only we can choose s squared and s z to be uh, those are commuting observables so we could measure those at the same time and their eigenvalues would have to be such that the z component can go from minus some value up to plus that value which we would call s the total spin and the eigenvalues of s squared have to be s times s plus 1 times h bar squared. So, once we know that these commutation relations are the same as angular momentum, then everything else has to work out the same way. So we can write the eigenstates like this, we can label them by some quantum number for S squared and some quantum number for SZ. So if we call the state with spin S and Z component M, SM, and S squared acting on that state gives us h bar squared S times S plus 1. And SZ acting on that state gives h bar M. These eigenstates are not the YLMs, because we know that those come out of particles going around in three dimensions, and we're talking about intrinsic angular momentum, so we're talking about things that as far as we can tell don't have structure. So we're not thinking of these as YLMs, these are just eigenstates of intrinsic spin. So in the problem set, you're going to work out a formula for what the raising and lowering operators do. And they have the same form for orbital angular momentum and for spin angular momentum. So the raising and lowering operators acting on a state sm, if you s square root of s times s plus 1 minus m times m plus or minus. S. so they give you this proportionality factor up front and they change m by plus or minus 1 because that's what raising and lowering operators do they change the value of the z component so these s plus and minus can be written in terms of the x and y components of spin just like for angular momentum So the values that this quantum number S can take, 0, 1 half, 1, 3 halves, 2. And then M can go from minus S, minus S plus 1, up to S, in integer steps, just like angular momentum. <coughs> I have a question. Yeah, what's the largest value of S we found so far? Um, I was just going to cover that. So, spin zero, the Higgs particle that you guys heard about the LHC turning on, one of the things they're looking for is the Higgs particle, it's supposed to be spin zero. Everything that you see is made out of things that are spin half, so quarks, which make up protons and neutrons, electrons. That's everything you see. Neutrinos are also spin-half, you don't see them. But they're there, coming out of the sun, and all around us from the Big Bang. Photons are spin-1. Also, the other um, force carriers for the interactions you probably don't know about, things that hold quarks inside nuclei. Gluons. Gluons are spin-1 things responsible for uh, neutron decay W and its partner the Z, are spin one and the graviton the force carrier particle for gravity is supposed to be spin two but no one's technically seen a graviton as a particle the way we've seen photons as particles So you can do Compton scattering of a single photon off an electron and see that it scatters off in a collision. No one's done that kind of experiment for gravity because gravity is so weak. And no one's seen this Higgs particle. So the biggest intrinsic spin that we've seen is 1. So there are bound states of uh, quarks, for example, that have If you didn't know that it was made of quarks, it has some total angular momentum. Part of that is the internal spin angular momentum and part of it is the internal um, orbital angular momentum of the quarks going around each other. So you can, people have found high values of spin for those composite things, but for elementary particles, the highest we've seen is one. So, when we're talking about elementary particles, it means that we don't think they have any structure, at least at the length scales that we've probed. so they're point-like. And you could imagine that if you wanted to, you could imagine that somehow magically a photon is a bound state of something so small that we can't see it somehow. And so, this is really some orbital angular momentum of some constituents. But there's no way... In quantum mechanics that you could pretend that the electron is a bound state and this is some internal orbital angular momentum. It could be a bound state, but you'd have to put something with spin half inside in order to get the total angular momentum to be spin half, as we'll see. So, all these guys with integer spins are called bosons, and all the ones with half integer spins are called fermions and that's important later on when we get to spin statistics. The short answer is that you can put lots of photons in the same state, like when you build a laser beam. But you can't put two electrons in the same state. So things that you can put lots of things in the same state are called bosons. Things that you can only put one in that particular state are called fermions so spin half is the simplest non-trivial one spin zero is pretty easy there's no spin so there's nothing to do so spin half is the one we would be most interested in so if we want to use this notation of kets with s and m then we can write a half and then plus or minus a half so the first half is the total s and the second one is the z-component, or to be simpler, we could write the spin-up guy as just an up arrow, we could write the spin-down guy as a down arrow, or we can write things in terms of two-component vectors. So. We could have a general state, pi, and represent it as a two-component vector, which means the component, top component A tells you how much of the super linear superposition is the spin-up state, and B tells you how much is in the spin-down state. And I think for further confusion in the book, sometimes he writes it like this. don't like cat notation, you can also you could call this one chi up and this one chi down, if you like Greek letters. So chi up would be 1, 0, and chi down would be zero one. 1. So these are basis vectors. We're spin up and spin down in the z direction. So, the advantage of this is that uh, working with two component vectors is pretty easy. Yes? Everyone agrees. Mm -hmm. So, and if you want to be fancy, you can call these two component vectors spinners. Because they're, they can have complex numbers appearing. And it reminds you that you're talking about spin. So if we look at s squared acting on chi up, that's supposed to give us h bar squared times s times s plus 1. So s is a half. And s plus 1 is a half plus 1. So this is 3 halves times a half, which is 3 quarters. on chi down, has to be the same thing. So it's h bar squared times 3 quarters. Chi down. So given that there's only two possible states and we know what the eigenvalues are, we can write down what the matrix is that represents s squared. acting on the spin up, it gives 3 quarters, acting on the spin down, 3 quarters h bar squared, acting on the spin down, it gives 3 quarters h bar squared, and it doesn't give us any mixtures, so it's a diagonal matrix. component acting on chi-up has to give us h-bar over 2 times chi-up. And the z component of spin acting on chi-down gives minus h-bar over 2. And so we know how to write the matrix that represents S z. There's no mixtures, so the off-diagonal components are zero diagonal on its h bar over 2 and minus h bar over 2. And I think we're out of time. why I like teaching it because then I get to learn quantum mechanics so and I don't it's, have to feel bad if I just um, have trouble with it I'll always have trouble with it um, well hopefully you'll have less trouble the more problems you've solved I wish you <laughs> <laughs> so anyone who says they understand quantum mechanics is lying but you can become proficient at quantum mechanics if you don't fully understand it.